Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. Welcome, listeners, to the Ms. Interpreted podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm here with my colleague, as always, Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. As we close our chapter today on season three of Misinterpreted and soon open a new one, thank goodness, with both a new year in 2021 and season four of the podcast, it's hard to believe. It is. And happy new year, Kelly. And also to all of our listeners, of course, we have a whole new year up and running. I'm just like you. I'm really glad about it. Of course, we had all hoped this would be a happy new year. I saw a... Uh, funny, not so funny Twitter post after the horrendous protest event in Washington. It was like it was posted by the year 2021 saying uh-huh. to the year 2020, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I have to admit that was a rough day for me. I finally just, I had to just go outside and just get away from the news feed because I was glued to live stream. And I was like, I just, I have to take a break. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, it was just one of those surreal moments. Yes. Our nation is off to a rough start on that whole incident and what some of the implications are, particularly the consideration factors for those of us working in public relations. But in the meantime, we'd like to take a look back at 2020 and particularly at Misinterpreted Season 3 yes. and the second year of our podcast. Yes. I can't believe it that, gosh, it was what, September of two, like two Septembers ago that we started yes. this. It's been a, just a great journey. And as, as always, we have our sound engineer, Chris Hill of HumblePod, who's with us yet again to queue up some memorable moments from season three. But first, Kelly, I have to ask you, if you had to sum up 2020 in a quick quote, what would it be? Mine, I'll go ahead and tell you, is that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, maybe a little humility goes a long way. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably um, a good one. I would one. have said, and this too shall pass, but apparently it's not passing. <laughs> no, it's not. We're still in the middle of a global pandemic and civil unrest. And so you know, we're just back where we were, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. And authenticity does matter. So, you know, when we look back at last year, some of the themes that just pop up, obviously, the U.S. presidential race. It's amazing to me where we are now and how all of that unfolded. And, you know, th- that whole episode running alongside so many other very large scale global events, whether it was COVID, whether it was the racial unrest and the uh, renewed awareness that we have to have as a society around so many of these issues of empathy. I think the word disruption really sums it up in a big way. In every way. I mean, just the disruption of our lives. And on that note, I, on a personal note, I would just have to say that there were some big changes for me in 2020 that were really spurred on by COVID. For one, we are opening. This will be the first time it's formally announced. We are opening an office in Northwest Florida on the yes. Panhandle. We have co-working space in Sandestin and I'm going to be splitting my time between Florida and Tennessee as we build out our hospitality and tourism portfolio down here. We have a lot of experience in that. And it was really just a need to make a change, just need to push myself out of my comfort zone a little bit and do something new and different. And I wanted to focus on my health. So I thought it would 
be good to split time between Florida and my home state of Tennessee. Well, I'm delighted about this change because I think the positive change running alongside the change that's thrust upon us sometimes is just what makes it survivable. You know, having a change in the routine and one that is opening up new opportunities and new ways for us to expand what we do is really terrific. And I really applaud you for getting out of the comfort zone. It's something that a lot of people They kind of hover back in and they don't want to welcome anything different that's optional into their lives when something so chaotic is going on. But I think that you're taking this approach of really trying to expand out New Horizons is a good thing. I do, too. I'm I'm reinvigorated and I'm definitely out of my comfort zone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, we've talked so much, too, in the past season particularly about mental and physical wellness and mental well-being. I know that the PRCA in London has so many resources to help its members through a lot of the stresses and strains that go part and parcel with having a career in public relations. But this year, all of those resources have taken on new meaning. And we've addressed that a lot, actually, here on our podcast. And I just want to remind our listeners about all of those resources. They have an online mental toolkit for PRCA members and just the PR industry. You don't have to be a member to access them. So just remembering all those pieces, the work-life balance part of it, I think that we're in for another really disruptive year in a lot of different ways. And just being ready for the unexpected is important. It sure is. Well, as we go into 2021, I'm proud that this is our 38th episode of Misinterpreted. And one new element that we hope to roll out soon is a misinterpreted moment. So more short form video pieces that we can roll out in social media and be more responsive to issues and events as they happened. Yes, it was definitely a goal for us to be a bit more in the moment this year, which means I'll have to actually do my hair and makeup, but we look forward to it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Season three of Misinterpreted included, as always, so many remarkable guests and thinkers and thought leaders And if we had to summarize the season under three descriptors, it would probably be leadership. We talked a lot about leadership, career ingenuity, and survival skills during the multiple crises that occurred in 2020. Yeah, our first guest of season three was Rod Cartwright, and he's a friend of mine in the PRCA over in the UK and has been a PR leader for so many years who has given throughout his career quite substantially in service to the industry. And this year I had the opportunity to work with him on PRCA's COVID-19 task force. So Chris, yeah, if you could uh, cue up Rod's clip. And that's where learned experience and the instinct born of learned experience is critical. Although I'm a huge fan of process and protocol and method, I don't think we can underestimate the value of human insight, human experience, and dare I say, humanity, because I think the best crisis communication has humanity at its core, not just empathy, but the willingness to match empathy with action. Well, and that's sort of the je ne sais quoi of leadership, right? And part of it is a commitment and a sense of vision that you can't necessarily put your finger on. And people are, as professionals, They're either going to decide they're going to be of that mindset or they're not, or they have the makeup to be of that mindset or they don't. So when we go back to that fundamental question, as Kelly kicked off earlier about leadership in general, you know, there's a lot of that to it. 
but I digress. I know that we did want to ask you too about the COVID-19 task force. That's where, you know, you and I have had a chance to work together. And when we talk about resources that are going out to the PR industry and with thought leadership, uh, really to help our professional community across the globe be able to have the best tools and resources at their own disposal, would love to get your insights about how that's going. Very happily. And I realized you asked me that question about 10 minutes ago and then I went <laughs> off on a, no, it's a, a, complete, a complete side street. So apologies for that. The task force, and I think we should attribute properly here, I believe that simultaneously Tony Langham, who became chair of the task force, he's CEO of Lanson's, and Mary Beth, you, I believe, got in touch with Francis Ingham and said, shouldn't we be doing something? So kudos to you, as you say, on your side of the pond. You know, the task force was basically set up in early March to provide practical support to PR professionals during the outbreak. I mean, if you look at our purpose, it's to, and I'll, you know, I'll quote, to provide senior practitioner support to peers in organizations and consultancies across the world through targeted personal advice. And our starting point was setting up through an army of, I think, 100 plus volunteers, a one-to-one free advisory service where whether you were in-house or in consultancy, you could be given or pick an advisor and have a free half-hour consultancy. I've done a couple of them helping people out and it's, you know, it's just fantastic. So I think that was very well used. We've been doing... I think a fascinating series of webinars, if you call the task force forums, which have sort of oscillated between very, very practical sessions for those running agencies and comms teams from financial management, mental health, team motivation for remote teams, all the way through to what I call macro issues. So we had a session with Deloitte looking at possible future scenarios we had a session yesterday where I was in conversation with a, a leading economist about where things might be going. We did a fantastic session on purpose with a group of specialists from around the world. And I think that's been fantastic as well. And then finally, there's a project that I happen to be centrally involved in called the COVID Communications Observatory, where we're starting to look at pulling together a central repository of examples of what we're calling communications excellence during and beyond COVID in a way that will help practitioners around the world to enhance their practice. And this is being managed centrally, but delivered at a very local level, because I think, and I say this as a Brit, a lot of the examples we have in comms are defined by the English language and therefore are weighted towards the US, well, North America, the UK, and the former British Commonwealth. And I think we're probably missing out on a whole world of insights. So we're looking at allowing people to do this in their own language or English. I think we need to get more global and more local in the way that we think about learning as an industry. So those are some of the things that we're doing. The last thing I'd say is that all of the task forces work. We managed to fairly quickly persuade all of the other international bodies from EACD, AMEC and ECO to IPRA to get involved. So it's truly collaborative and it's truly global because I think we have a tendency to be sort of internally competitive with our industry. And I, for one, was fairly determined that 
if we're all in this together, then we have to get out of it together. So I'm, I'm kind of collaboratively wired, and that helps with our exercise of reaching out and involving most of the industry. I enjoyed that interview so much because Rod really delved into the secret sauce of what makes PR so powerful. Mm -hmm. And that's the art and science of collaboration and what Rod called the power of human learned experience and just simply humanity. Mm -hmm. It's such a major part of what we do. And I love that turn of the conversation where Rod talked about that. So, Kelly, more locally here in Greater Knoxville, we're fortunate to have excellent media and journalism serving our region. And one of my favorite figures in that professional community is our friend Tirza Smith of WATE-TV 6 News, which is the ABC network affiliate here. And she is a powerhouse. And I so enjoyed spending time with her and getting to know her on a more personal level. It made me just love her even more. And even though she's younger than both of us, She's kind of who I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> right, me too. I have such to, style. She does. I follow her on social media quite religiously and uh, on Twitter in particular. And so she's just, she's a great follow. I loved hearing Tirsa's personal story of how she built her career from the ground up on her own, but also how she both received strong mentorship early in her career and how she's now paying it forward by trying to give strong mentorship to the new generation of broadcast journalism professionals coming along in this industry, which I think is so important, especially to have someone like her mentoring young female journalists. Mm -hmm. Being a role model is very important, and she is such a role model. I also embraced as part of that conversation her take on how media and politics are perceived by so many in the public to intersect. And this has been a big issue for me and a lot something I've written quite a bit about on my LinkedIn blog. Uh, she is a major proponent of making sure all voices are heard. And that's something that I really appreciated. She was a wellspring of insight on that topic, which is so relevant right now with the political strife going on and how people perceive news media. Chris, would you cue up Tirsa? And it's funny you should say about being a black reporter and getting the stories that are maybe geared toward race. Or I do a, a special every year called Hidden Histories, and it is our black history special. And so it's so funny you should say that because in the beginning of my career, I did struggle back and forth with the whole, okay, I got the black stories. But after much thought, it's kind of like, good, because I know I'll do it justice. I know I will put special thought into it. I know, not saying that my colleagues wouldn't because they would, but with my background, I know that there's a special weight to it. So over the years, I have really just found more joy in putting things like that special or just giving my input on stories about race in the newsroom. Like we, I'm trying to think if I should tell this story. So we had a, oh yes, <laughs> so, you must. So now. why not? Why not? Why not? Because they were very gracious. So I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. So for example, I, especially as you get older, you kind of don't care what you say out loud. And I think that kind of comes with time and being seasoned. And so, you know, we're in the midst of all of this stuff, you know, with the protests were going on in Knoxville and everything was just kind of ramped up. And so I kept making conversations about making sure we were focused on what the truth, don't get so caught up in the protest. We need to always be looking at the message. What do these folks want? We as a newsroom, are we addressing, are we doing the stories not just showing, look, walking, walking, somebody threw a, a rock in a window. Are we talking to people in these marches saying, why are you here? Why are your kids here? What have you dealt with? Talk to me about what it's like in East Tennessee, really getting into the story, not just the video of the day. And so it was one morning and it was one of our local police stations. They had put out a 
photo composite of some folks that they were looking for. Now, remember, we're in the height of all of this, especially when it comes to African-Americans being arrested and making sure not given special permission, but the same respect or the same treatment you would give anybody else. And so the pictures that came out, instead of just being either a mugshot to say, hey, we're looking for these people, we know who they are now. Instead of just showing a regular photo, because what do you need to know? If it's a photo, I need to know what they look like. Face, maybe body, height, weight, whatever. And the photos were so subjective. The woman was like on the table. She had like a bottle of Hennessy in her hand and her tongue was out like this. And then the guy also had a bottle. I mean, but it was random because the story had nothing to do with alcohol. Like it wasn't like they robbed a liquor store, you know, because then I would be like, well, okay. But it wasn't that. And so I messaged them and I said, hey, let's talk real quick. These pictures, you obviously got them off of their social media. But why these pictures? Because I don't know if they're guilty or innocent and they may well could have done it. But if they're a suspect, you're not judge and jury. You're here to find them. So you can't tell me out of the pictures you sent, it was four photos, two of the man, two of the woman. The two photos that they had out of the four would have been just fine because they were basically clear pictures of their face. You could see what they look like. You clearly had another look at them. The other two were subjective because it already paints a picture. You know, we're in varying, but right now everybody's all heightened. So if you're not a person who has yet to kind of come to the other side of, you know what, we all need to get on board in in this thing. You're looking for things to validate your feelings. So when you look at this photo, it's like, look at that woman. She's got that, you know, bottle in her hand. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And and, and you know how the comments go, because I know you all look at social media. And I said, I said, this is what we're talking about. I said, this is what your community, I called them and I said, listen, I said, I don't care if you never talk to me again, but I'm just going to tell you, this is why people are marching. I said, there was no reason out of those four pictures for you to include those two. I said, you've made yourself judge and jury. And they were very, they were receptive. He very quickly said, you're right. And they took down the two of them and kept up the others. And I said, and I said, please, no, I'm not saying that every black person that gets arrested is innocent. I'm saying the treatment needs to be fair the way you would anybody else. Why do you have to tell somebody that? I don't know. But here we are. But I mean, it goes for the whole thing. Why do I have to tell you that as a woman? If I'm 55, I'm still a fantastic news anchor. Right. But apparently you still got to tell ever. people. I mean, you've been right. doing it forever. Right. So you're, yeah. And I'm confident. I don't have those new people jitters because I've been here a while. So I don't know why we have to still make these, have these conversations, but we do. And we have to be real comfortable with saying it and we have to be comfortable with receiving it. And I will say they were very, very like, you know what? I see you. I hear what you're saying. And you approach that so professionally in terms of putting forward there's some nuance here that clearly when you made this decision, whoever it was, right. you had this lens in front of you or these blinders on and let me help you with those blinders and you walk them through it and it didn't have to be a big, ugly confrontational nope. thing. It was an opportunity to educate and you took that opportunity to educate someone. Hopefully they won't kind of make that mistake again. Hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. But that's for all of us. I mean, we all have our biases. When we look at people, we all have our assumptions. But at the end of the day, we have to literally realize we all have our struggles. We all are going through something. We all have our joys. And a lot of it is alike. Uh, And if we could just kind of work in that a little bit more, I think we'd be a whole lot better. Tirsa does more interviews herself to talk about these issues. I think more people need to know and hear what she has to say. Could not agree more with that. You know, uh, promoting voices of women in leadership is a major focus of Fletcher Marketing PR of of the agency, Kelly, that you've built. And that's been really purposeful and a, a big part of why we named the podcast Misinterpreted. Well, it's a fact that as women, sometimes, actually often, 
we don't get the share of voice that we should, even in the PR industry, and which is a female-dominated industry. Yes, and our third episode of season three touched on this, and with yours truly as a poster gal for what happens when a female voice speaks up in a dissenting way to male leadership. Yeah, I mean, you went through a lot, and some of that happened to me too, but not to the extreme that you were kind of penalized for speaking in a dissenting way to male leadership. But for you, it's been a struggle with PRSA. And in 2020, PRSA's leadership was composed of white males as national chair of PRSA, CEO of PRSA, president of the PRSA Foundation, and chair of the Diversity Action Alliance. And all of these men not only refused to answer your questions regarding a myriad of topics, including the finances of PRSA, these PRSA guys kicked yeah. you off their online <laughs> forum, clearly because you asked some questions about discrepancies that they didn't like. So you got censored. Yes, exactly. I got canceled, too. And you got you canceled, know, for yeah. sure. <laughs> and yeah, it's a struggle that's still going on right now. So stay tuned, everyone, for sure. Anyone who's in the PRSA community, it's my hope that there will be a better PRSA in the future, but we'll just have to see where the where the road takes us. It's worth paying attention to. Chris, can you roll to that segment where we discuss the situation? What about the PR industry? If the PR industry has so many more women working in it, one would think there would be an oasis of equal opportunity, right? But all the stats that you just read from Seth's article mm -hmm. say otherwise. They do. And of course, my anecdotal experience, you know, our U.S.-based industry association, you know that I'm under a ban mm -hmm. right now from the U.S. Yeah, you base. got kicked off PRSA's forum for asking questions that were legitimate questions about budget and money and a reporting well, they structure. Said that, yeah, they said that the formal reason that I was kicked off the forum was that I was being too challenging. Or they said it could be construed that I was attacking someone because I asked for financial accountability right. because there were financial statements that were rife with discrepancies. So, you know, what I've experienced is that right now PRSA is in very key leadership positions. It's white male dominated. The, almost that, the, 100%, right? Well, of those positions that control budget, control policy, we have a white male CEO, CFO, who he basically reports to himself from a staff position. We have a national chair, white male. And, and I'm, a, I'm a white woman, but I'm just trying to talk about this through the lens of diversity, because PRSA is always talking about its thought leadership and its posture from a diversity standpoint. Also, our foundation, the PRSA Foundation Charity, which its sole mission is promoting diversity, its president is a white male. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all three of these gentlemen have sent me letters when I have asked them for financial statements, and these are nonprofit organizations. Right. They've all three told me that they reserve the right not to answer my questions because they find my questions too challenging or I am, you know, my questions are not welcome, basically. So what about an annual report? Is there an annual report? There never was by the foundation until I kind of pressed the question and they decided to produce one this year, but they forgot to include any financials. 
Okay, well, I thought that was pretty much the purpose of an annual report. I thought it was, too, but they forgot to do that. So clearly they're trying to hide something, I think. So, so, I mean, these are the issues. It's like when a woman comes forward and and demands financial information or quantitative information, I guess they don't expect that to come from a woman. And so that's threatening, I suppose. Well, you get labeled as just the crazy woman instead of being taken seriously for your credentials, which you have amazing credentials. Anybody can go to LinkedIn and, you know, look at Mary Beth West's credentials. And so I don't understand. Well, I'll never understand. Well, well, I don't either. But I think what I'm dealing with and what most objective observers would say is it's part of a demonization campaign. But what my observation is, is that while women very often broad brushstroke, we very often are stereotyped as kind of mean girls or stab in the back and all of that. My experience in dealing with these gentlemen in leadership of this particular U.S.-based industry association in PR is that I have never in my life experienced so much bait and switch, gaslighting. Basically, you know, when I ask legitimate questions over legitimate concerns, they will bait and switch, tell me they're going to give me information one day, then reverse course the next day and tell me, something completely different and then label me hostile or hysterical Hysterical. later. And I mean, this kind of psychological psycho labeling, psychological warfare. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very, we're talking very kind of sinister stuff from, from my vantage point that I'm experiencing. I've really tried to document it. Not so much that I think that I can change anything with the culture anymore, but I just want it kind of documented. And I've written some LinkedIn blogs so that in future years, when this comes up as a case study, people can understand really what happened. But it ends up in the, in a textbook somewhere. I, I mean, I really think it's going to one day. It may not be next year or, you know, in the near future, but I think it's going to end up being something that in the future, people really try to look at what happened here and learn from it. Because at this point, I think it is a gender-driven issue and one that as we look at this conversation about gender in public relations and how women are in a very under-the-radar kind of way held back or discredited in unfair ways and ways that are meant to try to discredit legitimate concerns it's a real culture issue that's paramount to how the culture of the profession is. And I think it's a big reason why we're not respected as a profession. But we're doing the lion's share of the work. Right. Because right. we're the lion's share of the workforce. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that just pisses me off. It's the grand irony. It is the it grand all. irony. But I will say this about women in PR. I have found the women in our industry for the most part, to be very supportive and uplifting of other women in the industry. Many, many are. I I would absolutely validate that. I mean, it's not 100%. And you're not going to have 100%. Exactly. But compared to other professions and other people I know and what they go through with working with other women in different professions, and I've heard horror stories and I'm like, you know, I really get along with all of our competitors. I mean, yeah, we, we, I, yeah, I would agree. And so, and I think that speaks highly of us as women. 
we're in a communication profession. We should be able to communicate with each other. We should be able to deflect any kind of misunderstanding and just we have to lift each other up as women. I don't care if we're competing against each other, if we are trying to impact some political change. I mean, we we have got to band together more because otherwise we're going to be reading another article in PR News five or 10 years from now, and it's going to say the same crap or worse or worse. And it's just we have to stand up for ourselves. We need to demand more money. We need to demand promotions and we need to take more credit for the campaigns and the successes and the results and the ROI that we're getting for businesses and organizations. Fully agree. And I think the overarching theme to all of that, both the issues that I've voiced and certainly these larger strategic themes that you've just voiced is that we have got to push forward a culture of accountability for our profession that has just been missing. And yes, that, absolutely. Yeah, and, and our industry association is completely at odds with that culture right now. And until we stand up against that, we're continuously going to be shooting ourselves in the foot. So that's my call to action as we wrap up the chat here and look toward the future. I think that we have a real call to action ahead of us is that we have to hold ourselves accountable. We have to hold others accountable. And as an industry, that's the mantra. Well, my call to action would be if you're in the profession, it's a wake up call about which trade organizations you want to give your money to, how you want to participate in those, how you want to be affiliated with them. Because until all this happened, it was just like, oh, I just, you know, I just write a check. I don't yeah. know what's going on. I've never really looked into it. I've never explored it. So I think whether you're in PR or any other profession, you need to hold your trade organizations accountable and really pay attention to what they're doing. Yeah, this situation with PRSA is just unreal. But the problems there now are becoming part of their brand um, yeah, and their brand so voice too. even. And I opted out of my membership going forward. Well, it's a huge issue. Their membership is down um, at least a few thousand people this year and or this past year. And they've had more than a million dollars in losses, which has only been brought to light in the last month. So, it, you know, it, it's just a work in progress. And, and hopefully they'll be able to turn things around. Well, we'll see how this saga unfolds in 2021. It'll be interesting to see. You've really stuck to your values. And I've been proud of you for that because... As I've told you several times, I think I would have just given up and thrown in the towel and you haven't done that. And ultimately, it's going to make a difference for our industry. It may take a while, but I think what you're doing, standing up for what's right, is going to pay off for, for all of us in the industry. I really appreciate that. I think that when I think that when we do back down, sometimes it sets the precise bad example that you don't want to have followed and it just reinforces bad behavior. I think that we see that in a lot of organizations, whether it's a me too issue or whether it's some other form of misconduct that's going on in a company or group. I kind of fall into that mode of thought of if you see something, say something. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, yeah. I guess it's one of the lines that came out of 9-11, really. I mean, that if you see something suspicious, whether you're in an, in an airport or in a public space, you know, go and report it. And that sort of just got programmed in my brain. 
you know, having strength of conviction, really showing it are two different things. And two women, though, that we interviewed who've both done just exceptionally well on that front and as, as well as just managing their business so well were dual guests that we had for episode five. And that was Patricia Nash and her daughter, um, who also is COO of the company, Jennifer Evans. Patricia Nash Designs, that together they lead that company. It's an international brand of luxury handbags and accessories based here in Knoxville. And we were just so proud to have them on. It was a great moment for me because I love the Patricia Nash brand. And actually, I gifted you all with Patricia Nash crossbody bags yes christmas so yes we cashed in on that deal for sure it was fantastic (laughs) yeah it was it was a dream come true getting to work with patricia nash designs on a project we did for them around corporate social responsibility and patricia really leaned into that and took it so personally and was so moved and emotional about what their company and brand and employees could do to give back and so what I loved most about Patricia's comments on the podcast was just she's just so frank and blunt. And here she's this powerful CEO of a luxury brand. And she's talking about what the COVID-19 pandemic has meant for her company and just how she's evolved through the years of, of owning this company. So, Chris, please cue where Patricia talked about that. What about what's been hard? I'm sure that you probably have a long list of struggles that you've been through in business, but was there one in particular that it's happened that you weren't expecting? Well, it has to be what's happened to this world, this pandemic. I thought that I was almost in a place of being foolproof. I had been in business for so long before I started my brand. I often talk about it with my husband that I am so fortunate to have started Patricia Nash when I was 50 years old because I had owned a public company. I had ran big brands, global brands. I had sold all over the world. I had sourced in different parts of the world. I mean, I kind of felt like I was so seasoned that it would have to take something just crazy. I couldn't even plan what it could be that could hurt my business. And then the pandemic hit. And within three days, we had lost almost $10 million in orders. We oh, my gosh. And we didn't get about another $10 million that we were supposed to. So within one week's time, we had lost about $20 million in business. I mean, that hits you like a brick. Okay, what are we going to do here? And so it was a whole different set of skills a whole different think outside the box when they use that terminology. This was literally like there was no manual of how to handle it. So that was a challenge I never thought of and has really made me think different now that there is always going to be something. You think you got to figure it all out? You do not. Absolutely. Yeah, what you have to do is just be nimble to make a quick right, left turn, stop, go. You know, you've got to be like really quick in your feet of what to do next, you know, to stop the hemorrhaging over your overhead, stop production, pull back leather. You know, you just have to think in warp speed of how you're going to handle the crisis. And so I feel really good about how we're recovering from it and how I'm handling it, but I never thought I'd be going through it. What a story that was. And when it comes to crises that are just transformational in that way, 
I, I know what that feels like having previously been a business owner and having been through a few crises of my own, but what she was saying about having no manual for dealing with a watershed crisis like that and having to be in the moment, that really resonated with me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She is a true role model. And speaking of role models, one of our guests for season three did a two-parter with us, and that was Rax Lacani. Mary Beth, tell us about Rax. Right. We, I loved this interview that I was able to do with him. We decided to break it up into two episodes because Rax was just such a wellspring of knowledge about really the diversity conversation from the international perspective. Rax chairs the diversity initiative of the PRCA in London, and he works with a number of other colleagues on this issue in bringing much more knowledge and just awareness about that issue and so many of the granular issues that are that are part of it. So, Chris, could you please share that clip here? The issue is, if I'm honest, okay, so I'm a person of color, right? Had circumstances been different, I could be in a position where I feel very exposed, very vulnerable, very isolated. And the truth is, in the UK and probably in the US, especially amongst black practitioners and also you know, other ethnicities, at the end of the profession, they immediately feel that there's something wrong. They're not really being included. They don't feel as if they belong. And within a very quick period of time, they leave. Now, they either leave and quit the industry completely with a really negative view of PR and comms, which is the biggest crime in my eyes. It's like horrible to think that, that that is happening. But I understand it. All these talented individuals go away and they reject the establishment. They reject the agency set up or the in-house construct. And they become really amazing independent consultants. And, you know, this year I'm just taking stock of all the new consultancies and agencies that have been set up by professionals of color. And it is astounding. I'm not even saying that, you know, I'm saying these people are the people that the industry absolutely needs at the heart of it. And they are now operating as independents just doing stuff that they need to do, and they're doing it amazingly well. Now, that's a, such a crime for our industry because we are letting this talent leave, and good luck to them. <laughs> Whatever they do, they will be successful, but surely we want to retain them, and, and that's a big issue, and I think we need to have these very uncomfortable conversations as an industry, but in a way that removes hostility. And I think the biggest challenge to us in 2020 and beyond is how do we get this period of talking, get beyond it, and start doing stuff and really all come together on this? Because it's fairly simple. We all need to move forward on this. But there are elements of resistance and combativeness, and which I don't feel is helpful. Well, Rax is just one of those people who we could talk to all day and oh, yeah. never get boring. Exactly. <laughs> he, I think that he's just such a special person, and I look forward to growing that friendship. He is wonderful. And that's consistent across the board of everyone that we've had an opportunity to work with in the PRCA in London. And another fun chat we had this season was with one of our own homegirls, our own Sarah Merrill with Fletcher Marketing PR. And she was just promoted to vice president and is running our Knoxville office. We're so proud of her. Yeah, she's a fantastic member of our team. And I was really excited when I still had my company. I had the opportunity to hire her, and it was one of the easiest decisions I ever made and one of the best For decisions sure. I ever made. She is just just a wonderful person to the core. I'm so glad she shared her story of being a social media influencer 
herself and, and what it means to build a profile in a niche space. And what's so cool about it is because we do influencer marketing and Sarah is an influencer. So we've been able to bring what she has learned from being on the influencer side to the brands that we work with. And that has been invaluable. And it's crazy that she has this extracurricular interest that she's turned into part of her personal brand. And that is being a motorcycle enthusiast. You would just never peg her for that when you see her. But she's a big influencer on Instagram. She has about 70,000 followers now. And it was just so insightful to hear her entire story. Chris, let's roll that clip with Sarah. Sure. So I, I think it it's always important in a crisis situation for for a brand to be ahead of it and to really think through what that message is going to be that they're going to push out and to try to get ahead of what you don't want is for other people to speak to it for you. And so it helps to, in any situation like that, to make sure that you've got good communication within that organization and to be able to get a message out there with the crisis uh, so that what you don't want is just for your customers or for people in the public to to be making assumptions. And so I think, you know, when I think about, especially early on in my career, you know, one of the first crisis situations where we had to get a statement out ahead of some, some news, I think it was helpful for the customers of the company to to have a message basically explaining the the company's role in it and to push that out and to not leave people just to wonder about it because I think assumptions can be a very dangerous thing. But I think that's where for any organization and especially at Fletcher with our clients, that's something that we always make sure to work on with their leadership teams and to have a plan in place before a crisis happens because we've been working with a client who's a uh, works in risk management and captive insurance. And of course, during this COVID pandemic, this has been a lesson for a lot of companies in having a crisis plan. And so that before it strikes and before it happens, which one thing we've learned is that crises can and will happen. And COVID was a big one and we're probably going to have another one and it could be a natural disaster. It could be a terrorist attack. It could be something very big. And I think COVID taught everybody that you need to be prepared. And so having a crisis communication plan in place before it hits so that we know the steps that need to be taken when it happens and you're not backpedaling is just so important. And so I think now more than ever, companies kind of have the aha moment of we need this. And I think for COVID, it, it's late, but it's never too early to start for the next one. Well, congratulations to Sarah for sure on all of her accomplishments. And we just celebrate her and what she brings to the Fletcher team. I wanted to save this clip with Dr. Candace White for last as her work as a public relations professor and researcher based at the University of Tennessee has produced key insights for our industry in PR. And she is an amazing scholar. I think so, too. And I think that that conversation or was just a major eye opener for both of us. Absolutely. Yeah, it inspired me, actually. And I reached out to her recently. I'm excited about a new initiative on digital communications ethics that Candace is soon helping us to lead 
And when I say us, I mean a collaboration of different partners between the University of Tennessee, which together we're going to be talking more about that in another episode of Misinterpreted coming up in the weeks ahead. But yes, Candace spoke with us about the lack of proper disclosure and ethical practice among owners of the world's largest social media platforms. So that underbelly of social media outlets, unethical, the non-disclosures, the algorithms, the lack of awareness among users and companies alike about how all of that actually works, the larger societal and PR implications. She really covered the gamut of that on that conversation. Well, I think she blew both of our minds because we're in the business and what I didn't know about the level of privacy that we're giving up to these social media giants. I had no idea how pervasive it is. And I learned so much from her. She is a force to be reckoned with and the very type of voice we want to be amplifying and advocating for better, more transparent practices. Chris, will you cue up the interview with Candace? Mary Beth, just like you were talking about the PRSA agreement, what we haven't done as public relations professionals is looked at the company itself. And I will just say, I said in the paper and I'll say here, that the corporate social responsibility of Facebook is dismal. They are not acting in the public interest. I know we've all heard that on social media, you're not the customer, you're the product, you're what's being sold. Yes. And I think as public relations professionals, we just need to look deeper into this business model and how our own customers are being treated. And there's also implications for how we're using social media. When we look at the business end of it, if you look at your Facebook page for the organization, the client you're representing, that's what you see. But what do users see? Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that we can't see. And so what we do know is that algorithms are determining that. So you may be thinking you're reaching the people you need to be reaching, but you're not because every single person has more friends who are creating more content than any other person can see in a day. And so Facebook algorithms determine what you're seeing. And you also run the risk of your client or your organization, your message being surrounded by messages that you wouldn't want to be surrounded with, that you would not choose. Well, it bothers me when I think about how this trickles down to brands and how we advise brands, because all of our clients are using social media advertising as a tactic to sure. influence some sort of behavior. You have to. You, you have you, to use paid in order to be yeah. in order to be competitive. Right. So we do have one client in Atlanta who boycotted Facebook ads, and you know we've really struggled with how do we replace those ad dollars with another tactic that's as effective for the low cost. And there's just really not anything out there. So. It's almost like you have to be there whether you want to or not. Exactly. No, I totally understand that. You know, it's a social monopoly, as we said earlier. I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody does. I think what we perhaps need to look at is policy and regulation. Facebook, as you know, bought Instagram, but it also on 74 other companies. When you agree to these policies, you're often agreeing that For example, the company can use your microphone on your phone. And we've probably all experienced those moments where how did they know? But I was talking about this to somebody. But I think policy right now, of course, you know, in Europe, there is far more policy than in the United States. But there is no policy about the purpose for which algorithms can be sold. 
And so you just have to remember that $70 billion of Facebook revenue comes from selling algorithms. That's what they sell. And they're not just selling them to advertisers and your clients. They're selling to anybody that'll buy them. So do you think that they're selling to foreign governments? Oh, yeah. They admit it. I mean, there is no question about that. And to other entities that aren't advertisers. That's why that word advertisers is just so misleading, innocuous. Yeah, misleading. And and then the question becomes to which foreign governments? Well, I just wonder why they don't have to disclose who they sell. Because there is no regulation. regulation. (laughs) Which, yeah, that brings us to the next question, just to shift for a moment as to the implications tied to these super dominant social media platforms. And I mean, let's face it at this point, Facebook and Twitter in particular command almost what I would call public utility status, really. I mean, in terms of how much certain large segments of the public relies on them and is utterly dependent on them as platforms for news and basic information exchange. It's not just posting pictures of your kids and keeping up with your high school friends. This is such a huge swath of the public. This is their news source. Absolutely. So, right. Mm -hmm. So Candace, from your vantage point, I mean, is the evidence mounting that these companies have very little true ethical accountability test that they must pass with the public? And do you feel like that they're on the route right now for regulation? Well, only if we wake up (laughs) and demand this. Policy usually follows public interest and demands. I think there is a rising tide in that direction. But you also just have to remember Facebook's global reach. And so political events in countries around the world have been affected. And you're exactly right that I've read um, different reports, but as high as 70% of people get all their news on Facebook. Well, their news is what the algorithm is determining it is. So Facebook's interest is that you stay on Facebook for as long as possible, for as many hours in a day as, as they can possibly keep you there. And the way they can do this is by alleviating any kind of cognitive dissonance you have, by making it a place where you feel good, your happy place, a good place. Well, this happens when you see messages you agree with. Right. And so everything you like and share shows your preference, and you're going to get more and more messages that you like and agree with. This is how Facebook advertising in the legitimate sense works as well. When you buy that inexpensive Facebook ad, it's going to be put in front of people who will probably agree with it, who will probably be susceptible to that. And if it is for a client, a legitimate client, that's fine. But unfortunately, Facebook doesn't look into whether it's a legitimate client or not. Right. And doesn't this just promote digital addiction? Because I hear so many parents talking about their kids being just addicted to not being able to break away from their social media channels at all. It's their entire identity. And now when you talk about the cognitive dissonance, so they're manipulating these kids by giving them more and more of what makes them feel good, just like a drug would. It's the catnip. The NIH, the National Institutes of Health, lists social media now as a legitimate addiction for which you can get treatment. Wow. 
So listeners, to springboard from Candace's cautionary warning and where digital communications is going these days, please stay tuned because we have more coming on a special strategic partnership that we are thrilled to be a part of with the University of Tennessee. And Mary Beth is the springboard and the visionary behind this strategic partnership that we're going to tell you all about on another episode. Well, it is exciting when you have the opportunity to start the new year with something that really energizes you and reminds you about why you're in this business. That's an exciting moment. And that's something that kind of lifts you up in in, in times that are difficult sometimes. Well, I couldn't be more excited. And I, I really couldn't be more proud of you, Mary Beth, for leading the charge on this. There's so much work that needs to be done that we will be talking about, I'm sure, throughout 2021 and beyond. But on that note, it's been a memorable and eventful season three, that's for sure. And now it's a wrap. Our thanks to you listeners. Thanks for making our podcast so successful. Yes. And Kelly, your leadership and inspiration to me are great, but your true friendship is even better. I'm just so blessed to work with you and just being able to connect with our audiences here. So thank you for everything you are uh, to me. Oh, I just love you. And and I love your cooking too. (laughs) Well, we've got to get you up here uh, more often for that. Yes, for sure. Please follow us at Twitter handle at Fletcher PR. And you can also follow me, Kelly, at KD Fletcher and Mary Beth at Mary Beth West. We will respond to your questions and comments, so please post them using the hashtag misinterpreted, and that's hashtag MSinterpreted, and for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com, and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 